Open your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. God does not reject. He does not forget. He is not released from His Word. Hebrews 7 reminds us of all of these truths. tells us about our Savior, the one undying priest. So we saw last time, He was made priest with an oath. As Psalm 110 says, The Lord has sworn... You are a priest forever. The writer goes on to contrast the priestly ministry of Jesus with the Levitical ministry in yet another respect. Starting in verse 23, he says this, And there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Father, we just said that our restless soul all through the night, no comfort found in morning light. We pray that you would give us comfort with the light of the world with your Son, the one undying priest who saves to the uttermost and who lives to make intercession for us. Father, lead us into his presence this morning. Show us his glory. Transform us by the sight of that glory so that we might be more and more like Jesus. Give me the grace to speak powerfully with the demonstration of the Spirit, not the enticing words of man's wisdom. Father, we thank you for your word, that that it makes the simple-hearted wise. Make us wise to salvation. Give us ears to hear, so that we might listen to what your Spirit says to this church. We pray these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. God swore an oath to make Jesus priest. We looked at that last week. This second way, or this additional way, in which the priesthood of Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood is described here in verses 23, 24, and 25. Jesus' priesthood is superior because it's a one-man operation. There are not many priests in the New Covenant. There is one priest who is Jesus. And as our priest, he continues forever. He saves to the uttermost. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is a saving priest, one and undying, through whom we draw near to God and whoever lives to intercede for us. This truth is something that I trust we all know already. In that sense, today's sermon is review. But in another sense, I am very confident in saying not one of us knows it like we should. None of us make use of the priestly ministry of Christ to the full extent of everything that He is and everything that He offers. We might love Him according to our capacity. And seek Him according to our capacity, but we certainly do not love Him 
according to his divine capacity. So listen to this sermon and grow in your knowledge of Jesus as your priest, your love for Jesus as your priest, your desire to seek him as your priest, to make use of his priestly services. The writer tells us there were many priests under the Levitical system. There were certainly at least dozens of high priests, if not hundreds of high priests, who served between the call of Aaron, which was around 1446 B.C. or 1224 B.C., depending on how you interpret the evidence of the Exodus. But a long time, over a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, Aaron was called as high priest. And there was at least one high priest, or sometimes, as we see in the Gospels, there could be effectively two or three men serving as high priest at the same time uh, in certain eras of the Levitical system, such that by the time the Levitical system was terminated in 70 AD, there had been certainly dozens, if not hundreds, of high priests serving one after the other, father to son, or, depending on what politicians were pulling the strings, father to son-in-law, to relative, or this or that. These are high priests. They are supposed to repair and maintain Israel's relationship with God, and they die. There were many of them because they were prevented by death from continuing in office as priests. Now the writer says that, And I think it's fair for us to take a minute and push back at him a little bit and say, don't you understand? This is the human condition. We grow up, we flourish, we live, and then we die and leave our positions and titles to others. That's simply how the fallen world works. Protesting against something on the ground that someone else took the place of the original one who died doesn't make sense in this fallen condition. But of course, the writer can push back the other way and say, well, let me ask you this. Let's say you know a car mechanic. And every time you see this mechanic, he's driving a different new car. And you ask him, oh, huh, new wheels. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, the last one broke down. And you say, couldn't you fix it? Well, you know, you, you can fix certain things, but certain things are just too hard for me to fix. And you say, all right, all right. You know, by the fifth or sixth car that this guy has been unable to fix, what do you think of his skills as a mechanic? And a priest who cannot repair and maintain his own relationship with God and get rid of the death sentence that he is under for his own sin may not be the best priest. Just as a mechanic who can't keep his own car on the road may not be the best mechanic. These priests die and then another priest dies and then the next one dies Death is the penalty for a broken relationship with God. And if this priest can't fix his own relationship with God, why would I entrust my relationship with God 
to him? That's the question that the Hebrew writer is asking. If there were many of them, many Levitical priests prevented by death from continuing in office, we can safely conclude that their priesthood was not effective. Dying priests are a major liability. Clearly their priestly skills leave something to be desired. But thank God, you and I have one undying priest, and that's where the writer takes it. Because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. He will not be prevented by death from continuing in office. Pastors and elders come and go. Churches and denominations come and go. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is one. He is undying. The first, the most obvious application of this is that we do not need any other priests. The Roman Catholic Church, with its many priests, something over 400,000 globally today, I read. The Roman Church boldly and openly contradicts this passage of Scripture. We don't need many priests. We have one priest. If you need someone to repair and maintain your relationship with God, and you do, don't go to a dying priest. Go to the undying priest, eternal in the heavens. What does Jesus do when you go to him and make use of his priesthood? Well, the writer describes four things. He is able to grant eternal salvation or to save to the uttermost. Go to Jesus and he saves you permanently, perfectly, eternally. When you sin, you don't lose your salvation. You can't because your inheritance in Christ is incorruptible, undefiled, unfading. I met a fellow a few weeks ago who grows mushrooms. He gets a bag that's half wood pulp and half walnut holes and straw. He puts spores in there, puts some water in, seals up the bag, and the mushrooms sprout. But imagine that this fellow put a chunk of stainless steel and a mushroom spore in the bag and sealed it up. Can mushrooms grow on stainless steel? Can your salvation in Jesus rot or fade? The mushrooms can't grow on it. The bacteria can't eat it. There is nothing there on which decay can take hold. Your inheritance, your salvation in Christ is that stainless steel incorruptible, undefiled, unfading inheritance. Every once in a while you see that clickbait. 1080 shows that didn't age well. And if you're a sucker and you click on it and you read about the shows, you say, wow, that really didn't age well. But you will never say that about your salvation 
in Christ. Your salvation is as fresh today as it was when you were saved in 1992 or 1982 or 1970. 400 years from now, 4,000 years from now, 4 million years from now, your salvation in Christ will still be incorruptible, undefiled, unfading. Earthly priests don't even claim to grant eternal salvation. If you make use of their services, they encourage you to come back and make use of their services again. Typically, as soon as the next Sunday. Certainly by the next year. Jesus promises, whoever drinks the living water will never thirst again. Whoever eats the eternal food will never thirst again. Now, obviously, we gather here just like we did last week and just like we will next week. We receive this eternal salvation according to who we are. And we are time-bound creatures. And therefore, though you're saved once for all, following Jesus is an ongoing work through time. And he wants us to gather again and again. But he does not perform his great priestly work of sacrificing himself again and again every time we gather. That sacrifice is once for all, as we show every time we go to the table. We're eating from one sacrifice, not from a new sacrifice. If you have that confidence that your salvation in Christ is eternal, incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, the writer says you will draw near to God. He is able to save this group, those who come to God through Him. He doesn't say that Jesus saves us because we come to the Father. Rather, he says Jesus saves those who come to the Father. And that might trigger your inner Calvinist as you say, wait a second. It sounds like he's saying first you come to God, then he saves you. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying there's many different ways to describe the people who are saved. You can describe them as the elect. You can describe them as the ones Jesus saves. You can describe them as believers, that is, those who have faith in Jesus Christ. You can describe them as the people of God. You can describe them as the invisible church. Or, what the Hebrew writer does here, he describes those whom Jesus saves as those who come to God through him. Those who are saved are those who approach God as Father. Those who come near to Him rather than running and hiding from Him like Adam and Eve in the garden who hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Don't hide from Him. This is what Jesus is talking about when He says, walk in the light lest the darkness overtake you. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. If you want to hide from God and live in the darkness, if you don't want to come to the Father, then every wonderful thing the Hebrew writer has said about Jesus' priestly work is not for you. In earthly terms, if you say there's a temple in Jerusalem and there sacrifices are offered that bring salvation, and you say, I want no part of that. 
I want to stay away from that. I will never enter that temple. I will never offer a sacrifice there. Right? That salvation isn't for you. In the same way, if you say, I don't want to come to the Father. I want to hide from God. I would rather have my sin. Thank you very much. If I go to God, I will have to confess. I will have to forsake. I will have to forgive. I will have to let go of my favorite grudge or my favorite lust or my favorite habit. There's no salvation for those who insist on hiding from God. But those who come to God, those who enter the light and confess their sins, those are the people who are saved. Those are the people that Jesus does save. If you want to be close to the Father, you have nothing to fear. The one who comes to him, he will never cast out. Whosoever will may come. We draw near in worship by gathering with the people who pray, Our Father who art in heaven. If you can call on God as Father, if you can draw near to Him as Father in prayer and in worship, then you are this one described here as the one that Jesus saves as the one man, eternal priesthood. He saves those who draw near to God and precise, that's precisely why He saves us. So that we can draw near to God. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's the point of why Jesus came to earth, is to bring us to God. Christ also suffered once, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. How does he save? He saves to the uttermost. Jesus paid it all. He did not pay 80%. He didn't pay 99%. He didn't leave you with a $6 copay. He paid it all. His salvation is comprehensive. That means it's for all parts of you. Body, soul, spirit, past, present, future, emotions, and reason. Don't say that God can't save such and such. Oh, if you knew about my past, if you knew about my present, if you knew about my emotions, if you knew about my broken relationships, my baggage, my this, my that. He is able to save to the uttermost. Any and all of those things can be dealt with by the Son of God. That's how comprehensive, how perfect Jesus' priestly work is. If you're ashamed of something today, bring it to the Father. If you're angry about something today, Bring it to the Father. If you're hiding something today, bring it to the Father. If you're unwilling to give up something today, bring it to the Father. Jesus saves to the uttermost. Not just 99%, but the uttermost. Well, he made a sacrifice once for all. He died once, and that one death is enough to pay for everything. But he also lives, 
And in his life, he does this other priestly task, this task that we would call prayer. He ever lives to make intercession for those who come to God. If Jesus and the Father were in separate rooms, if we could say that, if one was in heaven and the other on earth, we would call this prayer. But since they're in the same room, since they're even sitting, the Bible pictures, on the same throne, it's described as intercession. The Son is asking the Father to apply His cleansing and saving work to us. This is a request the Father delights to hear. This is the very reason that He sent His Son was precisely to cleanse us and save us and bring us back to the Father. So don't think of a wrathful Father with a smooth-talking Son trying to talk the Father into something that He's resisting. That's not what the Hebrew writer means when he says Jesus lives to make intercession for us. Rather, the Father and the Son are united in saving us. And the form that unity takes is the Son constantly speaking to the Father, co-directing with Him the work of saving us by applying the Son's priestly sacrifice to us. We're so used to the misdirection, the quarrels, the disagreements of earth. We have a very, very hard time picturing what this unity of the Father and the Son looks like. In a certain sense, I would almost suggest that the best image of it is simply one of us talking to himself. Right? We all do that. You talk to yourself. You give yourself directions. When the Father speaks, the Son is His Word. The Word of the Father who is constantly interceding and saying, Father, forgive them. Father, apply My sacrifice to them. Which is exactly what the Father wants to do. And again, in earthly terms, no matter how much you want to do it, you get a little tired of someone else telling you, turn right here. Yes, I was going to do that. I was planning to. I wanted to. Please be quiet. That's not how the Father and the Son do it. He lives to make intercession, which is exactly what the Father wants Him to do. The love, the unity, the mutual delight that they have in saving sinners together is beyond anything our minds can grasp. It's mind-boggling. It's glorious. And it's what we're here to celebrate in our worship. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit intercedes for us, and so does the Son. For most of us, something is going to come up this week it's going to be too big for us to deal with. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I've got about 850 of those things on my mind right now. Nothing is going to come up this week that's too big for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to deal with. Jesus ever lives to make intercession. He loves us so much that He and His Father sit and talk together about how to love us and how to save us.
it doesn't say that Jesus lives to go skiing. That he lives to dine at gourmet restaurants. That he lives to fly. Or to bicycle. Or to work out. Or to listen to heavenly music. He doesn't live for any of those things. He lives to make intercession for us. He dedicates his life to saving you. This is your God. This is your Savior. He isn't distracted from his priesthood by wondering, oh, I might have terminal cancer. Oh, I might die. He will never die again. He ever lives. So come to God through Him. Don't be afraid of the Father. Go to the Father. Whatever you have to give up to get there is worth it. Any grudge, any habit, any sin, any pleasure, anything that has to go, any status, is worth giving up for the sake of being with this God, this Savior. You too are a priest to God. Love and delight in and intercede for one another. Just as Jesus lives to intercede for you. Let's pray. Father, give us the grace to love one another, to pray for one another, to seek the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, teach us bring our sins to Him to be dealt with. Teach us to bring our joys to Him to be shared. Teach us to bring our problems to Him to be solved. Teach us to bring our needs to Him to be met. Teach us to bring our children to Him to be loved and blessed. Our parents to Him. Our friends to Him. Father, teach us to share every part of our life with Jesus Christ, your Son, who in turn constantly and consistently intercedes for us in a way so intimate and perfect that we cannot even imagine it. Father, thank you that you love your Son and have given everything into his hand. Thank you that you love your Son and have sworn with an oath to make Him the perfect priest, one and undying, who continues in office forever and ever lives to make intercession for us. Transform us to be like Him through His priestly ministry and help us to be priests for one another, praying, interceding, even suffering if necessary so that Jesus Christ can be glorified. Thank you that he is all and in all. We pray for the day to come when he yields up the kingdom to you. God will be all in all. We ask it in your son's name. Amen.